This is episode 224 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Nerding Out with Michael Adams about Dictionaries. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm really pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. I've got Michael Adams with me. So welcome, Michael. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Jennifer. So we were just talking about your name being fairly common, and you ran through a list of people that you're not. So now we'll try and figure out who you are. And so what I know about you is you're the chair of the English department at Indiana University, my alma mater, and you got your PhD at Michigan. Is that right? That is correct. I did. I did all my degrees at Michigan, as a matter of fact. Gotcha. And I also know you're a words guy. I am. I I like to think that I'm bigger than that. But to be honest, it often comes back down to words, no matter what it is. If I'm listening to opera in a language I don't speak, then it's down to the sounds of the words. That's Mm -hmm. what fascinates me. And and I've been interested in words and and, uh, uh, their histories and that sort of thing from a very early age. So uh, it's kind of the through line of my life, and it's a very fortunate thing that I'm able to to work on it professionally because <laughs> otherwise mm-hmm. my life would be divided into these two compartments of what I did for a day job uh, and and my word fascination pursued uh, in the evening or something like that. And really fortunate. Uh-huh. Well, welcome to the show. It's really lovely to have you today. And today we're going to talk about dictionaries, uh, which I'm actually really excited about. Uh, because I think there's a lot underlying in the world of dictionaries that we don't know about. But uh, what prompted our recent interest in uh, bringing you on the show was that the Lilly Library has acquired a collection of dictionaries. And yeah, we're going to get really nerdy here on the show, but let's start with some basics. So uh, what is the Lilly Library? The Lilly Library is a, a special collections library, a rare book and manuscript library, that's you know, the basis of it uh, at Indiana University that was provided originally by um, a member of the Lilly family, the Lilly pharmaceutical family uh, uh, centered in Indianapolis, so nearby, and benefactors of the university. And they wanted the university to be able to, uh, I guess, compete with other universities in the sense that they had a repository of important historical works. So the original gift to that library was about Uh, 20,000 volumes, which is a lot, uh, and a building. The building has just been renovated beautifully. I I wish I could show you pictures of it. It's just really remarkable uh, what's been done. Again, partly with the Lilly Foundation's support, classroom spaces are are provided now that weren't there. And the reading room has a beautiful mural that's beyond description. And I would say to anyone who, who visits Bloomington, uh, or the university, that stopping by and looking at that mural, which you're welcome to do, uh, is, is really worth it. It's, it's a beautiful work of art, but it also says something really suggestive about our relations to knowledge 
and to the things we consult uh, to, to discover uh, things about the world. And, and that includes books, obviously, and manuscripts, and that includes dictionaries. Now, my footnote to this is that the uh, Lilly Library also has some um, other collections. One of them is an astonishing collection of puzzles. So oh. even, if, even if a member of your audience doesn't care about books or manuscripts or Orson Welles, uh, for whom we have an archive uh, and, and all of that, uh, that audience member might be interested in puzzles and puzzling. Uh, and there is a lot on site uh, that you can look at. And, and, and I'll make this plug. Um, we're not uh, Yale and we're not Stanford. We're a public university with a public university special collections library. And I mean it when I say that someone can walk off the street uh, as a visitor and, and register with the library and then explore uh, the riches of the library, which is a treat, I think, for some people and I hope for some of your listeners. Yeah, I, it's funny. So I grew up in Bloomington. And so the public library, the county public library was a place that I spent really an inordinate amount of time, not only as a kid, uh, but back then they also let us volunteer at a very young age. So I think even at starting at age seven, I was already like stamping cards and uh, yeah, just having a, a grand old time there in the county public library. But Bloomington also is home of the Indiana University Library, which is an extraordinary library. Mm -hmm. And now we also have, you know, the Lilly Library. It's funny, as we're talking here, I'm realizing Bloomington has three really exceptional libraries. So yeah, go go Bloomington. It does. No, it, it absolutely does. The the British historian Tony Jute, who taught at New York University for a long time, and some of your listeners may be familiar with his essays in the New York Review of Books or some of his more popular books. Um, he 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 writes in one of his essays about a friend uh, he'd come over to the States with. Uh, they were in their 20s, you know, when they bought a car in New York and they and they drove across the country and and I can't capture his words exactly. I don't remember them, but he talks about pulling into the Midwest, so to speak, you know, from university town to university town and seeing these, these libraries, you know, stories tall with these huge collections. And as a person who grew up uh, academically in England, he was used to closed stack libraries where uh -huh. you present a slip because you have a request and the exact item is brought to you and you have no browsing privileges, except in the catalog, the idea of being able to walk into a library and explore a whole range of a subject on a shelf for yourself, completely fascinating to him. And so yeah. you're right that, that, that the Wells Library, the Herman B. Wells Library, which is the major library on campus, is, is huge uh, and, and replete with all kinds of knowledge. And then we've got all kinds of smaller libraries too, the archives of traditional music and uh, mm. uh, 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 I'm trying to think of, oh, the, the library at the Kinsey Institute. Uh -huh. Lots of people know about, about uh, uh, Kinsey and, and sexology uh, mm -hmm. uh, from shows uh, on, on television, if, if nowhere else, or, or the films. And, uh, and that has a remarkable collection of things relevant to the study of sex and the history of sex and, and all of that over time, including, we can get to that, some dictionaries. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, you can barely, honestly, walk across the campus without accidentally stepping into a library, uh, big or small. 
So the Lilly Library acquired the Madeline Kripke Dictionary Collection. This is a great story. So tell us how that happened and what, what it, what's the significance of that? Yeah, Ma- Madeline Kripke uh, was uh, a lifelong book collector and sometimes an antiquarian bookseller. Uh-huh. She had a fascination with words, language, and dictionaries. And uh, she uh, built up a, a collection uh, that we believe, we estimate, is something over 20,000 books, plus a lot of other material, including uh, 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 an archive of uh, documents um, from the GNC Miriam Company, uh, which is the company that bought the rights to Webster's dictionaries and produced them as Merriam-Webster dictionaries. Now, that company in the 19th century, you know, was publishing Bibles and textbooks and the like, and they they were the American business people who realized that a dictionary could be like a Bible, that every house ought to have one, and every school room ought to be supplied with one. So you might think that they were really behind the whole idea of dictionary, but what they were really behind was making a whole lot of money by <laughs> selling them, which they did very successfully, right? The highlight of the archive of these Merriam-Webster documents, and I get, the, I get the brothers confused. One of the brothers writes to the other about the availability of the Webster's Dictionary and counsels that they should acquire it for just the reasons that I gave. And so you see the beginnings of the American empire of dictionary making, yeah. right, in that one document. Uh-huh. Uh, in in that in that archive, it's quite astonishing, and and the quality of uh, material overall in the collection is like that, just startling in its significance. Sometimes oh. she spent decades uh, collecting. Now, some people think you know collecting is going out and getting books that you like and keeping them in a room or something like that, or maybe you've got a taste for fine first editions or something like that, and you work with a bookseller to get them. Madeline was a curator. Her collection was curated. Mm. She understood the field. She knew what she was looking for to fill gaps in the knowledge that the collection represented. Mm. And I will, I will tell, <laughs> I can tell you a story, which is kind of a story on a mutual friend of Madeline's and mine, but I think he will forgive me if I tell the story uh, to give you a sense of how she worked. She had um, uh, acquired a copy of a book called uh, The Classical Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue which was published, I think, in 1785, very close to that, if I'm wrong about the exact date. It was written by a fellow named Captain Francis Gross. Gross was uh, one of the- <laughs> Appropriate those, name. I don't have a great name. <laughs> it, it, it's like a lawyer being named Costly, right? right. So, so, so Francis Gross goes off to uh, impress soldiers, you know, to go into bars, taverns, brothels, or whatever, where all the young wastrels are, right? And then he would pull them out and forcibly uh, uh, make them into soldiers, right? That was his job. So he spent a lot of time in these places where a lot of slang was spoken, mm-hmm. a time when people really didn't know a lot about slang, mm-hmm. and it hadn't been recorded in many dictionaries, a few. So he wrote this dictionary. Well, when he'd finished the dictionary, uh, and it had been published, he, he was still going to the brothels and the taverns. And, and that meant he had to revise the dictionary because he picked up new material, right? So Madeline had collected his copy of the first edition in which he wrote the material that was going to be added for the second edition. Okay. Then she collected his copy of the second edition that had his notes for the third edition. Uh-huh. And then the slang lexicographer, Jonathan Green, came into some money and bought 
Gross's copy of the third edition with his notes for the fourth edition, which meant that Madeline's series was broken. Uh-huh. And she didn't speak to Jonathan after that. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is a very great regret for Jonathan, because honestly, Jonathan just thought she was fantastic uh, and has been a great uh, admirer of hers and has written very movingly about, about her death uh, from COVID complications early in the pandemic, which is why her collection became available. But, uh, but she was that serious, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was a goal for her. And if it had just been a week longer, her book agents would have contacted her about that being for sale and she just missed it. Right. So think of this collection of 20,000 books, not just as well, 20,000 really great books to have, but as a type of systematic approach to the record of not just the English language, though primarily English, but a lot of different languages, Mm. um, Europe, especially, but even worldwide, uh, she was interested in collecting stuff that filled in that picture. I'm trying to reconcile this picture of a guy who goes out to recruit soldiers, but like says first, before we get to that, yeah, just sit down here and let's have a conversation about some, yeah, what would you call this? Or what would you call that? Or no, what well, words would, would you use for this? Or <laughs> now, Nowadays, we have uh, institutional review boards for yeah. uh, human uh, 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 research studies, and we have laws against surreptitious recording. I don't know that he asked people. I think he probably just sat there and drank <laughs> and listened to people and wrote stuff down is probably what he did. Although, unfortunately, he didn't leave an autobiography so that we know exactly uh, what his methods were. But that's but that's an example of, of what's in it. So that's, that's um, the excitement of it. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that we're doing now uh, because the, the collection arrived at the Lilly, well, it, it arrived at the university in December. It's not actually in the Lilly Library right now. It's in storage and sorting rooms in the Wells Library that we were talking about before. But I've been lucky uh, to uh, open up some of those boxes and to look mm-hmm. into them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a blog uh, in July uh-huh. uh, called Unpacking the Kripke Collection. Uh-huh. And I'm going to do uh, book by book posts. Uh-huh. And it's not curated. That is, I'm opening up boxes and finding what's there. I'm not going for the 12 most expensive items or the 12 most famous items. And and so as I poke through the books, for instance, I find something like uh, a dictionary of musical terms from the 1920s published in raised lettering for the blind. Oh, wow. But raised lettering for the blind, published by an institute for the blind in, in Louisville, Kentucky. So that's not what we usually think of when we think of dictionary, but it yeah. sure is. Right. And it's just a remarkable artifact uh, to see. To, uh, there was at that time an outreach to, to blind Americans who might want to know words right. um, about some other practice they had in life, like music. Uh, It's just it's just really astonishing the types of things you encounter. And I want to highlight those things more than I want to highlight the the grand dictionaries that, uh, frankly, uh, the British Museum or the British Library and Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale. They've already got. I mean, we we have all it's a little bit like um, Shakespeare's first folios or the Gutenberg Bible. You know, I mean, big, important, rich libraries have these texts. I use library isn't that rich. We were lucky to be able to get this collection and it's got some of those types of items in it, but it's got loads more stuff that opens your eyes to American ways of living with words. And it's just, 
it's just so well, I could go on and on forever, Jennifer, about this. I mean, one of the things, one of the things in the collection I like the best are these little, I think most people would think of them as ephemera. You've got one in your attic or your basement or your garage or a drawer in some chest of drawers in your house. You've forgotten about it entirely. You were driving through Arkansas. You stopped at this uh, uh, roadside candy store. Uh, they had a $2 dictionary of Southern sayings or yeah. how we talk around here, you know, that mm -hmm. type of thing. Mm -hmm. And you thought, eh, why not? You know, $2, mm -hmm. I'll take my candy, get back on the road and I'll have the souvenir, right? Yeah. Those books, those little pamphlets uh, pop up all over, not oh. just America, but Anglophone countries anyway, Australia, Great Britain. And over the years, she had collected just, uh, I don't know if it's a literal ton, but a ton of these things, right, mm -hmm. that are interspersed among all the fancy books in the collection. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, someone can come from anywhere in the world to Bloomington, Indiana, in the Lilly Library, study how people talk about their own language to strangers mm -hmm. through those books mm -hmm. uh, in a way that nobody has ever been able to do it before, mm -hmm. because nobody's ever taken those little dictionaries seriously before, right. right? And now that's all possible because of Madeline Kripke, her collection, and the Lily Library's acquisition of that collection. Oh, that's really neat. Oh, I can't wait to to see what you run across. Yeah, I think I'll just yeah. be- Well, neither, neither, neither can I. I mean, I I've, only been <laughs> I've got about 12, 15 items set aside uh, you know, that I picked up at random out of out of various boxes. But, you know, I've got more exploring to do. And to be quite honest, I mean, I'm the chair of the English department, as you said, and emergencies come up all the time. So I have to have a dozen or more of these posts in the bank, right? I mean, I can't count on being able to write one every week. So you're excited. I'm excited about May when classes are done and I can spend more hours over there looking around to pick up more things to write about. And it's going to be, it's just going to be a really great adventure mm -hmm. among things I didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. And I'm supposedly an expert in this field, right? Mm -hmm. so, well, Madeline was just as much, if not more, an expert than I. And the, and the, and the collection proves that over and over again. So I think I saw a photograph of a few, you know, like a little pile or yeah, a little display of some of the books. That's really what got me uh, interested in this whole thing was I saw that photograph of some of the things that were included in the collection. Like one of them was the of uh, pirates slang, a dictionary yes. of pirate slang. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I would like to look at that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and book after book, you think, wow. I have to take a minute and look at this because mm -hmm. I never even thought of that before. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, she had all that stuff and books about language and books that illustrated use of language, mm -hmm. um, some too. Um, so some dialect fiction and poetry is in the collection, um, just as an example. Now, I have to tell you, Madeline had a very, well, she enjoyed the erotic and the profane. Ah. Put it that way. Ah. She, she, she had a business card that had all of the usual information okay. on the front of the card. Uh -huh. And if you turned it over, it identified her as a lexicon. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which, that I mean. That for her was a, was, was a joke. Right? That word works pretty well for what she did. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And so, 
Um, so that tells you something also about what she collected. And so you'll find all kinds of what we would think of as standard dictionaries in the collection. Mm -hmm. But you'll also find a lot of slang mm -hmm. and a lot of profanity and a lot of dictionaries that address um, erotica uh, and, and stuff like that, because that was a sort of integrated sideline uh, of hers. Mm -hmm. um, and that also is fascinating, because while some of those books are um, rare and well-known in scholarship, others are not, right? Uh -huh. And she managed to pick up a lot of stuff that folks wouldn't even know about again. One of the things that she collected besides dictionaries were the books called Tijuana Bibles. Do you know about Tijuana Bibles? No. Oh, these were Mexican-produced smut cartoons. Oh from before it was safe to print that type of thing in the United States. Oh. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, that's kind of a lie. It isn't dictionaries. It isn't about language per se. And mm -hmm. yet the language of sex rises, obviously, in those books. Um, sure. and, and so they, 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 they illustrate uh, uh -huh. the language that you might find. So if you were going to do a sex dictionary, you might ask yourself the question for evidence, shouldn't I be looking at the Tijuana Bibles? And the answer would be yes. So you I can see. get to the language through that sort of a document, you can get mm -hmm. to that, that sort of language through a certain type of dictionary. Uh, and she she had it all. Oh, that's really, yeah, that's really interesting. So just as you've peeked in there, I know you haven't had a lot of time, but if as you've peeked in there, any interesting definitions that you've come across? <laughs> no. And, I, and the reason I say that is because we, I just haven't had the time yet to read things that carefully. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, so, um, uh, you know, I, I suspect that there are small unknown dictionaries of subcultures mm -hmm. in the collection that will give us a lot of words and definitions of words. We think we know completely, but don't mm -hmm. because those words are used you know, under uh, so, sort of uh, cultural camouflage somewhere mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. with a different meaning or a sense that there'll be a lot of that in there. Um, but uh, no, this this process has been long and complicated, getting it to uh, getting the stuff to the University. Madeline lived uh, on on Perry Street uh, in the West Village. Famously, her apartment was uh, stacked from uh, floor to ceiling uh, with books. She had built-in bookshelves by the time uh, she died. It was difficult to get around the apartment. Um, I worried about her because she was using a walker later, uh, you know, the last couple of years of her life. There was, my, my understanding from friends was that there was barely room for her to get around among the piles of books uh, in there. And I worried a little bit about her safety, but she had um, a type of bohemian fascination. Mm -hmm and investment or commitment to the subterranean life of the city, I guess you could say, you know, not, so she, so she wasn't overlooking what was going on at street level, but she was also more aware than most people of what was going on, uh, well, not only on the street, but maybe in, 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 in some corners of the city that, that others weren't, uh, weren't aware of or weren't exploring. Sometimes, by the way, what, what she was interested was, again, ephemeral. I know that there are a number of uh, youth-centered dictionaries. I mean, I'm trying to think about a category. It's not really a category that a, that a scholar would recognize yet, but mm. maybe the collection will force us to recognize that in addressing youth, maybe troubled youth in urban areas across the country, oh. you know, you come up with uh, projects that develop a sense of identity and cultural awareness. And you say, well, look, guys, let's make a dictionary of all the slang we know. 
um, and then we'll we'll sell it for a quarter on the street and 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 support the youth center or whatever it is. There there are items like that in the collection mm -hmm. that show how we, she was engaged in a very democratic way uh -huh. uh, with the with the uh, the way words intersected with the identities of people around her. Uh, some of them lofty and some of them not. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about having items in your house or in your library that a friend might have created, right? And they're for a specific use, right? So yeah. I was actually thinking about my son who played soccer for many years, and then he joined a very good team that was managed by a Spanish-speaking coach. And mm -hmm. so the Spanish-speaking coach would coach the boys in Spanish, no uh -huh. surprise. And so my son had learned, you know, kind of classroom Spanish, but the language for soccer, for coaching soccer is very specific. And so a friend created, you know, I guess I called it a glossary at the time, yeah. but you could call it a dictionary that was very specific. So it's like, how specific did you get? This is for an American first language English middle school boy who's being coached by a soccer coach what words do yeah. you need you know so yeah. well, it's very no, specific but it but it was incredibly useful right yeah well that's exactly <laughs> right and that's part of the history of dictionary making glossaries lexicography from the earliest days the, the first glossaries we have are really annotations uh in medieval manuscripts oh, uh, yeah. where people have written glosses of the words in the margins or scribbled a, a collective group of uh, hard words somewhere uh, in the manuscript. And then in 1604, what we usually call the first English dictionary was published. It's got a title so long, like a lot of books of the period, that we just call it a table alphabetical. We don't go through oh. the, <laughs> the title. But it was put together by a schoolmaster named Robert Caudry. And it's not very long. It's just a couple thousand words, but it belongs to a tradition called the hard word dictionaries tradition. These are the earliest dictionaries that were really meant to help school children with words they wouldn't be familiar with uh, in English. Some of these seem absurdly obvious to us now. Ocean was a new word uh, in the early 17th century. So that's included in the dictionary. You think that's a hard word, but it was hard for the school children at the time uh -huh. um, uh, who were unfamiliar with it. So it's not far off from what you're describing, you know, in order for people to do uh, you know, just the daily work of being adolescents, playing sports, being in school, all of those things, somebody gives a helping hand uh, with, uh, with vocabulary. Mm -hmm. uh, and the dictionary is born from that. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's no surprise that even now, people put together relatively short um, mm -hmm. and, and uh, intensely practical dictionaries. But what I like about what you're describing is the human engagement involved in it. I mean, lots of people think of dictionaries as sterile, scientifically compiled reference works. You mm -hmm. go into them for information. And, and, you know, there are different types of information. One type of information is whatever reveals the user and the writer uh, of a dictionary and their communication through the dictionary text. That type of human engagement. And in the case of your son's glossary, it has to do with his relationship to a coach who speaks another language to which he has to accommodate himself to do the thing he wants to do, which is to play soccer. It's not just a list of words and definitions. It's a site of culture, human spirit, 
Uh, and, and to read dictionaries like that just makes them much more wonderful texts than one would expect otherwise. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I'm just remembering this now, but I actually, I was involved in making a dictionary and it, 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 I can't well, believe I totally forgot about that until just now. So yeah, I have to tell this story. So I was living in a, a very remote town up in the mountains and I had come down to a slightly larger town where I was uh, I think I was giving a talk about books down there. And then afterwards, there was kind of a general meeting and somebody stood up and said, I'm looking uh, for someone who could help me create a dictionary of Aborigine language from Australia. So does anybody know any linguists that are local? And I looked around the room and it, and I felt like, well, I guess that's me, actually, (laughs) of all the things. So I ended up getting involved in this project with him. He was actually a rock art expert, but along with rock art for the Aborigines in Australia are the stories that go Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with those drawings. And so as a result, you know, he kept encountering the same words over and over, you know, the word for lizard or a word for God. Right, right. But he'd only done kind of, you know, sort of an attempt to classify those, but in a fairly disorganized way. And so, you know, partly he was just looking for kind of clerical work, administrative work. And so um, Wardaman is the language that that uh, the people that he was studying were using. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's <laughs> just occurring to me now that, yeah, and that's right, because I actually spent quite a bit of time reading the advice that was given to field linguists about mm-hmm. how you make that kind of glossary. Sure. Uh, so I was a, you know, total novice at doing this, but I did create something ultimately. Yeah. But I, I, I guess that does bring me to one of the questions I had, and that is, as an expert in dictionaries, when you look at a dictionary, what criteria do you use to judge, like how good it is? Well, there are a lot of them, and how good it is is kind of relative to uh, the maker of the dictionary and its purposes and its intended audience, because obviously um, that'll affect whether the dictionary is uh, successful at what it attempted to do. Right? Oh. That's one measure. When we're thinking about general purpose dictionaries, the ones published by Merriam-Webster and the American Heritage Dictionaries out of Houghton Mifflin and random house or those types of dictionaries. There's obviously the number of words that are included, the scope or range of the dictionary, Mm -hmm. how much other stuff is explained in it. Uh, Are you interested in etymology? Well, you might want to look at the etymologies and judge whether the etymologies are correct uh, or well done. That's difficult for a layperson to do, uh, but I certainly look at, uh, at that as an indicator of whether there's a certain level of professionalism behind the dictionary. Some dictionaries include illustrative quotations. Uh-huh. Historical dictionaries like the Oxford English Dictionary are built out of those quotations first and the definitions are added second. Really, the definitions are, are like a scaffolding on which uh, all of the, all the quotations are hung because the meaning of the of the, of the words is in those quotations and the, and, the, and the people making the dictionary are looking at more than the quotations included in the printed text, but that's how they're coming to conclusions about the meanings of words in the first place is from that data. 
So that's another thing to, to consider. Do you want those uh, quotations? Uh, do you want a dictionary that doesn't have them and goes for quicker explanations? Some dictionaries are facetious. Um, the most famous of those in America is Ambrose Bierce's The Devil's Dictionary. And there are other funny dictionaries like that. But, but even a big dictionary like Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, which was published in 1755, um, includes facetious elements. He's famous for having uh, defined uh, uh, lexicographer as a harmless drudge. <laughs> and, and, and How also, could you resist, right? Yeah, you get to right. write the definitions as like, ha ha, here's yeah, my well, That's right. It's what happens when you put, when you put a poet in, in, you know, in, in a lexicographer's uh, uh, bird seat. But another famous one is his definition of oats, which I'm not quoting exactly, but he points out that oats are what um, horses eat in England, but feed the populace in Scotland. Right, uh, uh, which is a kind of nasty anti-Scottish comment, something mm. for which he was famous uh, in other writings. So you can look at a dictionary, engage its purposes or its voice that way, and see whether it's done with purpose and assurance and skill. And, and part of the basis for that judgment will depend on the dictionary itself. There is, as you were just pointing out, in your son's case, there's a lot of what we might consider vernacular lexicography or lay lexicography, which I absolutely encourage. I mean, uh, if you uh, uh, like to draw, uh, you're not pretending to be Leonardo da Vinci. You're just drawing because it gives you a way of looking at the world, right? Same for painting, same for performing music. You don't have to be a pro. As a matter of fact, a lot of music people would say everybody should be playing music and not listening to recordings, right? I mean, participating in the making of it and, and, and shouldn't be shy about being amateurs. Well, if you're an amateur lover of words, or if you're a person with uh, a very clear practical purpose, like your son, um, you can put together a glossary. You can do it for fun. You can do it because, again, it helps you engage with the world in a certain way. You see things you didn't see before in the way you might if you were drawing the world rather than just looking at it. And so, you know, just as people play the piano or draw for fun, uh, they should make dictionaries, I think, or glossaries of things that interest them. Uh, and uh, I often encourage students to do that as a project in certain language-focused classes at the university. It's a great way uh, to mm -hmm. get to know uh, things about yourself uh, through your study of language, as well as things about the language that you're studying. Mm -hmm. uh, glossaries like that, I think, abound. And a lot of examples of that uh, type of uh, dictionary glossary making are in the Kripke collection um, or in other collections that are in the Lilly Library. There's something to be said about the material object, the dictionary that you look at, that from its binding to its text gives you information about the world, right? It helps you, mm -hmm. helps you get knowledge of the world. But there's um, something to be said, too, for, you know, just the experiment involved. Mm -hmm. In mm -hmm. making a dictionary. The so, process, so, the process yeah, of it. The process. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so to get back to your question, I mean, if I'm looking at what people are doing online in what they're calling dictionaries or glossaries, I'm not uh, uh, saying, uh, I'm, not, I'm not evaluating those on the basis that I would the random house on a bridge dictionary with right. a you know, staff of 120 people, uh, many of them uh, already trained lexicographers working on a product that's meant to be um, somehow standard and public and, right. you know, will sell well because people immediately recognize its value. When I look at those dictionaries online or, or in print or a manuscript, um, I'm thinking, wow, 
what a way to see the world around you, to write these words down, to define them in this way. Did you note pronunciations? Well, that means that you're listening as well as reading, you know? I mean, all of this stuff is just, it's just great information about the way we live uh, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that comes through the, the, the practice um, of dictionary making, the process, as you put it, um, and is there for us to, to view in the artifacts in the end, too. The other example that you gave yours, working on that dictionary, well, it happens. I'll just say it now. It's a testable hypothesis, and I don't think anybody knows the truth of it quite yet. But I'm willing to venture that the Lilly Library is now at least the North American center of dictionary research, if not the world center of it, because of the Kripke collection, but also some other collections it has. And one of those has been donated by the former director of the library, a fellow named Brian Mitchell and his wife, Linda. And it is a collection of, of bilingual dictionaries, but that doesn't quite capture what it's about. I would prefer to call them contact dictionaries hmm. because they're the sorts of uh, explorations of vocabulary you're describing having, having worked on, right? Mm-hmm. An indigenous population on a Pacific island in contact with anyone from a missionary uh, to an anthropologist and out of that comes a certain type of glossary mm-hmm. uh, that then gets printed up and published because um, uh, it establishes a relationship between the speakers of the two languages, or it makes it possible for them to understand uh, one another. Or in some instances, it's a step toward either documentation of the language as a whole, yeah. or it's a step toward something like translation of the Bible into the indigenous language from the European language, right? So people are trying to work that stuff out. Huge collection um, of contact dictionaries that they've blessed the Lilly Library with. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, any any of you listening, uh, there's a very good catalog of it that Brian is compiling uh, over time and adding to that's available on the web. If you just type in Brian Mitchell Dictionaries, it's B-R-E-O-N, uh, and Mitchell the way you would expect it, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, well, boom, it's going to just spring right up there on your screen, and you can see what that collection uh, in the Lilly Library looks like. The Lilly is the home of Eric Partridge's papers. Uh, Eric Partridge was a 20th century uh, lexicographer, uh, an Englishman, uh, though originally from New Zealand, and uh, uh, he's famous for, among other things, um, the Dictionary of Slang and Unconventional English, which first came out in the 1930s mm. and was the, the big slang compendium for decades uh, before some other dictionaries came along more recently. Uh, most important among them, probably Green's Dictionary of Slang by Jonathan Green, whom I mentioned earlier as that person who tripped, who tripped Madeline's collecting up at one point. And then another uh, gift that I don't know exactly how it was arranged, I wasn't involved in it, was was about nine tons of material from the Barnhart family uh, of lexicographers. Clarence Barnhart was the editor with Edward Thorndike of uh, what became known as the Thorndike Barnhart Dictionaries. They were school dictionaries in the 1930s. Thorndike was an educational psychologist who developed a word list of the most frequent words that would be the most important words for kids to learn and have a dictionary of. And so these dictionaries were built out of these these lists that he created. Um, But Barnhart went on after being editor of the Dictionary of United States Army Terms in the Second World War to be editor really at the same time of the American College Dictionary 
uh, which is a short dictionary, uh, mm. college-sized, or maybe 70,000 headwords, something like that, uh-huh. uh, immensely popular. Even though there had been college and collegiate dictionaries before, collegiate is a registered trademark of the, of the Merriam-Webster Corporation. So some dictionaries are college dictionaries, but only Merriam-Webster dictionaries are collegiate dictionaries. Oh, I didn't know Be that. Be careful. Oh, yes. Ah, All this dictionary lore. You know, dictionaries are made by people. They are absolutely uh, part of the world in which we live and work every day, right down to trademarks and copyrights and and, and other things. But anyway, Barnhart went on to found a series of uh, companies. He was a, a freelancer who had superb connections with all of the major publishers and uh, did dictionaries for all of them. And his two sons, Robert and David, followed in his footsteps. And Robert's <laughs> wife, Cynthia, was also a lexicographer working on these projects. Eventually, Cynthia was the only person left uh, of the, well, that's not fair. David Barnhart is still alive. But um, but Clarence had died and her husband, Robert, had died. And she had all this stuff related to their enterprise. And so she donated that to the Little Library a few years ago. It's got so much stuff in it. It's got all of their business records, mm. which is so important because that stuff is proprietary. I can't go to Merriam-Webster and say, open your books for me. Mm-hmm. How do you finance a dictionary project as a publisher, right? They'll say, well, it's a very interesting question, but frankly, that's none of your business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. our business, quite mm-hmm. literally, that now we've got this window into how it all worked mm-hmm. and the correspondence with people who contributed and the correspondence with the publishers and the correspondence with the printers mm-hmm. and all of this kind of stuff. Slips from the Oxford English Dictionary that were sent over here to help uh, editors at the University of Chicago put together the Dictionary of American English, Hmm. which was published in the late 30s and 40s. Clarence Barnhart bought those slips, the Dictionary of American English slips, and I don't know if the Oxford Oxford people are listening right now. I think they already know about it. Uh, Somehow the Oxford English Dictionary slips got sold right along with the ones uh, that came from uh, the Chicago Project. And so there's a little bit of the Oxford English Dictionary uh-huh. It's over here in the Lilly Library, um, uh-huh. American data um, mm-hmm. that was lent, basically, to the Dictionary of American English and never returned. And then all the, all the evidence that they used, the corpus, we call it now, of uh, quotations that they used in constructing their dictionaries, first written out by hand, then typed, then worked through some type of a photocopying process that they developed so that they didn't have to copy out stuff from newspapers and magazines uh, and all that kind of thing. And then a digitized version of that with punch cards. I mean, they were on the cutting edge. And you can see then not just the book and what it says, but everything that went into that process from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And it is just an amazing collection, an amazing opportunity to see how dictionaries are, are, are made, or at least how one company dealt with the making of dictionaries. So all of that stuff is at the Lilly Library. Yeah, that's true. Well, I said we were going to nerd out here on this podcast. And yeah, we am I doing we a know. good job? Am I, am I helping? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, that, that's really good. I mean, it brings up this topic that I wanted to ask you about. And it, you know, it's sort of a look behind the scenes in a dictionary making. I think most of us well, me at least, you know, just think, I don't know, the dictionary must come from God or something that, it, you know, that it's, mm-hmm. that it's not constructed, that it's just handed to you fully formed. Yeah. 
But more recently, I think people are becoming aware that no, that yeah, dictionaries are made by people. Yeah. And so some of the decisions that go into what's included, what's marked as offensive, what's right. what's a separate meaning, what's incorporated in the first meaning, all that stuff. Yeah. And so some of it, you know, everything's political now. And usually yeah. I stay I stay away from politics on my podcast. But I did want to ask you about this because I think with wokeness, people are becoming more aware of the political weight of yeah. words, and that's impacting dictionaries. Dictionaries are now coming under fire for sure. either changing a word or not changing a word. Or, yeah, can you help us out? Yeah. What should we be thinking about as consumers of dictionaries? <laughs> well, let's start with what you said about the dictionary as a constructed thing, because it really is. And I spent a lot of my career and will continue to do so because it's just so interesting uh-huh. looking into the archives of dictionary projects to figure out what it was people involved were trying to accomplish and mm-hmm. what arguments they had among themselves about the best way of doing that. Right. Uh, these are these are dictionaries most people uh, you know listening to your podcast won't refer to probably, but there is a Middle English dictionary, a dictionary mm-hmm. of English between about the year. 1100 of the common era to about the year 1500. I was lucky to, that's where I cut my lexicographical teeth. I was oh, in was it Middle English? On that okay, dictionary when I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, which was its home. It took as long to make that dictionary as it took to make the Oxford English Dictionary. It was an ongoing project at Michigan from 1930 until 2001. Wow. Uh, it involved a lot of labor. It involved uh, three... Uh, principal editors and a lot of other editors. And so, you know, uh, it's not just what they say in the, in the documents that no one is supposed to see that are kept in the filing cabinets uh, uh, in in the dictionary's offices and are now in archives. You know, you can look at this forensically. It it was just a little esoteric argument I was making at one point, but I was, I was kind of interested to figure out how many early glossaries were cited in the MED. I mean, what was the, ratio of glossary information to other types of information. Right? Uh-huh. This is before the thing was digitized. Right. Well, I actually took sample parts of 128 pages. It was published in 128 page parts. I took, I took samples of those parts from each of the three major editorial periods. And I literally went through and counted up all the glossary citations all of the quotations from a book called On the Properties of Things, a sort of encyclopedia hmm. published uh, in, in the late 14th century, and then all of the citations from Chaucer. Okay. And, and, and you could discover two things by looking at it this way. One was that the glossary citations, very measurable, nonetheless occur, uh, depending on the editorial period, from about 1% to 2% of the total text of the, of the dictionary, of the quotations. Wow. And that on the properties of things runs to about 2.5 to 2.9%. Okay. And that Chaucer runs from about 3% to over 6%. And whether it's 3% or 6% depends on the editor in charge ah, of the dictionary right. at the time. They had different attitudes towards those texts. Yep. The last editor was a Chaucerian scholar. Mm-hmm. The first editor was a linguist. Uh-huh. And the first editor, Hans Kurath, was very plain that 
authors weren't going to be privileged because they were famous authors, that the subject of the dictionary was the language, that focusing too much on Chaucer focused too much on one type of language use, mm -hmm. and that you wanted to make sure that all those religious texts and all those political pro proclamations and all those all those other documents were represented in the dictionaries, among the dictionaries quotations too, right? So he was very restrained mm -hmm. in including Chaucer among all those other texts. And then that ballooned later on uh, in, in the dictionary's history. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that the two editors had different visions of what a dictionary of Middle English should do, yeah. how it should talk about the language and how should it should serve its users. And the danger of having a 70-year project is that you may very well end up with, at a later stage, a different dictionary from the one you had at the early stage, right? Yeah, so, I mean, so that's one thing to consider is just how human all of these decisions are, mm -hmm. how they reflect other aspects of people's intellectual awareness and, and commitments. Um, uh, and all of that is lost to the, I hate to use the word naive, but I mean, you know, the naive reader, the person who thinks, you know, God gave us the dictionary and that's what it is. I mean, they're not looking for evidence of that. And you have to work pretty hard sometimes to figure those stories out. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are instances of human drama, Jennifer. I mean, there, I once told the story of how uh, in defense of the quality of that dictionary, the Middle English Dictionary, uh, an assistant editor interfered with an application for a grant. He and a colleague were fired from the dictionary. All the correspondence among the great figures uh, in medieval studies and lexicography of the day, all of those are in the archives for you to read. Mm. The University of Chicago professor notifying the editor of the Middle English Dictionary of the time that this assistant editor was, quote, out to knife him and the dictionary too. That's a quote. That's a quote that I'll never forget. Oh, reading, no. uh, reading, reading in this letter, right? And but, but it was true. It was a real. I mean, it was principled. It was the editor trying to do what he thought was important. He was wrong, by the way. Oh. And the assistant editor was very right. And when Hans Kuras, the the first editor who saw any of the dictionary into print, took over the project, he commented in a memorandum, uh, basically. Uh, that the 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 chief editor Thomas Knott had been totally mistaken in the way he was going. He didn't say, and Sanford Meech, whom you fired, was right. It's just that everything he said was wrong, and everything he said they were going to do differently corresponded to what that mm -hmm. assistant editor was claiming um, behind the scenes mm -hmm. at the time that that all of this blew up. I discovered this because there was a sealed envelope in the Middle English Dictionary's on, uh, archives uh, that said confidential uh, and had the two editors' names on it. Uh, and you opened it up and then you began to see uh, some of the documentation of, of, of this, uh, of this uh, really serious argument and the same sort of uh, argument, uh, uh, well, a different sort of argument, but a similar argument came up in the Dictionary of American English's production where um, assistant editors have been guaranteed, uh, and an associate editor have been guaranteed uh, those titles, and they were going to appear on the title page mm -hmm. of the first published volume of the dictionary. And the chief editor, William Craigie, who'd been one of the Oxford English Dictionary's editors, and had come over to America to make this American dictionary mm -hmm. without a lot of respect for American English. I have yeah, to say. right. I, oh, I think that uh, gets, you know, yeah. Oh, well, he was very imperious in his way of handling it. Well, he he'd promised them that they were going to get the credit they deserved. And the first part, again, the dictionary was published in parts, say 120 pages first. And then 
uh, bound volumes were were uh-huh. you know collected after the fact. The 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 first uh, uh, part came out uh, with all the editors' names and their titles correctly on the title page. Big day for those subordinates, right? Uh-huh. And then the first printed volume came out, and they were they were missing from the title page because uh-huh. the editor had taken them off. Oh, one of them quit immediately. He'd been working with Craigie as an assistant since the Oxford English Dictionary. It was a it was a it was a sort of professional marriage of some forty years. And George Watson, the associate editor, just said, "I have had enough," and he walked right out. Right, uh, and uh, it affected the attitude of the other assistant editors yeah. towards Craigie uh, as well. But you know what an argument to have about credit where it's due and. You know what it means for people to work on a dictionary for decades and not yeah. receive the appropriate credit. There's a lot at stake in that, mm-hmm. and some of it was this argument about who knew lexicography better: no. the English who had produced the Oxford English Dictionary, right. or these Americans who needed to learn how to do it the right way oh. uh, from the English. Uh, who, who you know, it was almost an imperial, right? Argument, yeah. You know? And, uh, and so there's this ideological underpinning to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get back to the political question. The mm-hmm. politics has been there in the process of dictionary making all along. Mm-hmm. Then sometimes it surfaces in the text as well. When you go to those little dictionaries I was talking about before, I have one in mind called Hash House Lingo, uh, which came out uh, in the 1940s. And it's a it's only about 80 pages long and it's not sophisticated as dictionaries go. It's got a word and bold and then it's got the meaning of the word. Right. That's all it is. And, and it's kind of a classic. And I'd never thought about it very much. I'd worked on uh, restaurant jargon some earlier and have an ongoing dictionary of restaurant jargon that I've been mm-hmm. working on for a long time. You know, I have a copy of it. And uh, I looked at it recently, thinking about what you brought up about the about the political and ideological treatment of words in these dictionaries. And lo and behold, I realized that a lot of the words in that glossary are not things like you would expect, like the numerical code, 86 for it's finished, we're out of that or something like that. Mm -hmm. And not, um, uh, oh, I can't even remember some of them. Um, something on a raft, you know, and it's eggs on a piece of toast, or all the lingo that the that the soda counter uh, men had for 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 the work they were doing. But you know, customers are a part of that work, mm-hmm. and so this little glossary has got way more pejorative terms for black people, women, right. and people of other uh, identities. Just you know. As a matter of course, just thrown right in there among all the rest of them. And the guy who Uh compiled it, compiled it from listening to people in diners across the country. Wasn't done scientifically. He wasn't a linguist. It's a little bit more like a piece of journalism. It Mm -hmm. may not, in its lack of scientific method, accurately represent, say, the frequency with which these words occurred, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe one of these pejorative words was a one-off and, mm-hmm. and the word you were using to describe the food item you'd find in diners all over the country all the time, right? right. But it's what he heard. It's what mm-hmm. he decided to write down. And whether it was his perception of the situation or whether it was actually the situation mm-hmm. represented in these, in these countermen's language, right? It's not a pretty picture, but yeah. it's a picture we need to view. Mm-hmm. It's a window into the racism Uh, and the sexism of that time, Mm -hmm. maybe not completely eradicated at this time. Mm -hmm. And it's very naked in that book. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you get to some of the examples you're talking about, where, say, folks have recently boycotted dictionaries because of the offensiveness of some inclusions or definitions. That's a question uh, partly of what the dictionary is for. Mm-hmm. Since the rise of linguistics, more lexicographers have treated vocabulary as linguistic fact, right? Yeah. So you collect evidence in a systematic way, and you write entries reflecting the evidence you've got. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the evidence might in some way be biased, so you have to be careful about the way you collect it. Yeah. Also, the way you analyze it might be biased, but if you're thinking of yourself as a meaning scientist, mm-hmm. a semanticist, right? You might well shoot back to somebody who objected to a definition you've written, but that's what the evidence says, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But somebody on the other end of it is looking for the cultural relevance Mm -hmm. of what the dictionary says, not Mm -hmm. what the evidence underlying the dictionary says, right? Right. So they look at it and they say, wait, this definition is completely out of step with the way we think now. Mm -hmm. Go back and look at your evidence again. Mm-hmm. Or think about the way you might be importing some personal perspective into the defining or, you know, whatever. And, you know, honestly, most of the uh, big dictionaries that still have um, staffs and, and, and regularly revise their dictionaries, like Merriam-Webster, have been very responsive to these complaints. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, then somebody may say, well, you see, they're just pandering to these interest groups who, oh, what they're doing is realizing that The dictionary is a text that people read for many reasons, and one of them is to grasp cultural meaning. No, definitely. And if a dictionary is so rigidly semantic in its perspective that the linguistics gets in the way of cultural Mm -hmm. understanding, then Mm -hmm. then audiences are going to object to that. They're going to say, that's not precisely why I went to the dictionary. Right. Right? so, So it's an adjustment of the dictionary as an artifact with, you know, to the needs of its audience. That, that's what we're looking at now. And, and just as dictionaries used to be more impressionistic and became more scientific, mm. now they may be a little less scientific or just as scientific, but a little bit more thoughtful about mm-hmm. the address they make mm-hmm. uh, to their readers. And, and I think that's a fundamental issue of all scholarship. I'm saying this as somebody you know, who works at a university and writes scholarship and naturally thinks it's just it's just right, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I researched it and I wrote it and I tell people about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm the expert and people should listen to what I have to say. Yeah. Um, that's not that's not uh, scholarship suited to a democratic life. Right. And, and it doesn't mean that you fudge the facts or you just overlook the truth of things as you find them. Mm-hmm. But it does say that maybe and now I'm poking fun at, at maybe myself, uh, certainly some colleagues, uh, maybe if you write a book with a little less jargon. Uh, mm. So that people uh, who are interested in the subject can connect with it, evaluate it, and maybe even comment on it intelligently in a way that informs your grasp of your chosen subject. Maybe that would be a good thing, right? Yeah, maybe yeah. the maybe the wall we build with science and 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 in group language and all that kind of stuff gets in our way. And and I think we see that dictionaries are susceptible to those problems too. Uh, as a form of scholarship. And I think it's great that people speak up uh, in defense of what they think they know, um, Mm -hmm. that maybe the dictionary doesn't know as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're really making an interesting point there in general about scholarship that involves the study of humans. Because whether it's anthropology or dictionaries or linguistics, you know, people are 
biased and prejudiced and racist. And we do have certain characteristics that, you know, in a perfect world, we would probably rather that we didn't have. And so how much do you document those? And if you document them, does that lend them more weight? So yeah, right. it's interesting. It's yeah. sort of like this issue about dictionaries is where you see those problems really come to the fore. Whereas yeah. in other scholarships, it might be more subtle, like you're yeah. studying a tribe and yes, that tribe is very prejudiced against another tribe. And so their language about that other tribe is terrible. And so if you publish that and promote it, then it's like, ah, oh, you're promoting all this, you know, intertribal, you know, bad stuff. Yeah. But, but yeah. I mean, it's really, it's a profound problem that you have whenever you're studying people, even if it's, yeah. you know, it's a little bit like Lolita, right. About a book about pedophilia. So right. you know, how, how much are we going to go around saying, Oh, Lolita is this great, you know, great masterpiece. And people are like, uh, yeah, that guy's a pedo. So <laughs> yeah, no, well, and, and, you know, we'll make the excuse that uh, the artist and the work of art aren't necessary, necessarily endorsing the pedophilia, but they're exploring, uh, exploring it. That's a hollow excuse to some people and, mm-hmm. and, and a good excuse for some other people. But mm-hmm. I mentioned the Dictionary of American English before. It's four volumes long. The Oxford English Dictionary is 13 volumes long in its original um, edition. So I think it's safe to say, even though English is an older language, that American English wasn't given its due in that four-volume dictionary. That meant that there was some serious selection, uh, mm-hmm. both about which words to include and why, what made something American enough to be in a dictionary of American English, and what sorts of quotations should be used to illustrate it. And mm-hmm. I'll just say my perspective now, my view on it now, is that it is very much a mythological dictionary. It's a, uh-huh. it's a dictionary of white male engagement with American history mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. And that might be a reason, to get back to your question about how to evaluate dictionaries, that might be a reason to say it's not a very good dictionary. I think that despite the expertise that went into it, the, the leadership of an Oxford English dictionary uh, lexicographer and these other great scholars, it was really hard for the process to filter out that perspective. Yeah. At that time, maybe people didn't even think it needed to be sure. filtered out, right? So I think it's important to grasp what that dictionary shows us mm-hmm. um, about uh, how uh, folks, say, a uh, hundred years ago, looked at the language, but also how they saw language corresponding to American history and mm-hmm. American culture. And we'll criticize it left and right. But I'll tell you in one instance, you know, so I'm, I'm doing more study of this right now. And I'm saying this provisionally because okay. I haven't read every entry and I haven't charted it out. And I don't have graphs and numbers and that type of thing. But I have looked into it some. And, and I was kind of fascinated to find as I was troubled uh, w- working on scalper. As, as a word for um, the knife that you would use to scalp someone. Okay. Right? All right. And I was interested in that word because it had been excluded um, or, a, or a definition of it had been excluded. I can't remember which from the Dictionary of American English, but an assistant editor on that project, Mitford Matthews, then produced the Dictionary of Americanisms, a two-volume work that came out of it. And, and he added material that he had wanted in the original dictionary into his dictionary. And I was measuring the difference between uh-huh. those two dictionaries, right? He was the American from Alabama 
uh, Alabama. From, wow. From, from the woods, from the piney uh-huh. woods of northern uh-huh. Alabama, who knew American culture, you know, from living it. Yeah. And knew it better, he thought, often than than William Craigie coming over from England and telling everybody how to make the dictionary, right? Sure. Uh, but Craigie was senior, and he cut a lot of stuff that uh, Matthews wanted to contribute to the Dictionary of American English. Uh, so I was looking into what had been, you know, what the difference was. And this, mm-hmm. this word scalper came up. I was very interested to see that the Dictionary of American English includes a quotation that describes the scalping of white people by indigenous peoples, Mm -hmm. by European uh, uh, immigrants, by indigenous peoples, but also includes a quotation about army personnel scalping indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. Because historically we know now that there was at least as much scalping going in that direction as there was going in the other direction. And so it is a huge white affirming mythology that the Indian savages were out there scalping all of the innocent white people. That's not the way uh, the history worked at all. Mm. And just in that one entry, yeah. that balance, the, the editors accomplished something complicated. Uh-huh, uh, right. Just, you know, the, the complex nature of that word and its reference. Mm-hmm. And I can say with confidence that you look at other entries and are less satisfied with the way um, the way the process uh, worked out, the, the product that comes out of that process where the yeah. myth is, where the myth is much more self-fulfilling uh, mm-hmm. than it ought to be. And, and I think in the 21st century, probably pretty distasteful uh, right. to a lot of Americans. Right. Yeah, but that's not a reason to overlook it. It's a reason to see it as a window into an earlier uh, stage of culture and to criticize it on the basis of what you find in the dictionary, uh, and then in, in contrast to do a better job now mm-hmm. uh, than, than had been done then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's fascinating. Our time has just flown by here. I could, uh, <laughs> yeah, I could keep you for a lot longer, but I know that you have a meeting that you have to get to. Well, I'll tell you, the meeting is about another possible collection of dictionaries that would oh, go wow. into the library. So, so I'm not giving up on dictionaries uh, as we end our discussion. It'll be, uh, it'll be an all-day uh, uh, job of work for me. Uh, but uh, you, as you said, uh, suggested before, you wanted to nerd out and you got the right nerd uh, <laughs> for that type of discussion. And I could go on forever. So so you probably need to stop just to get me to stop. I think. <laughs> no, it, it was it was really great. I, I mean, I really appreciate the education that you've given us about not just the politics of making a dictionary, but the history of it and the mechanics of it. But I think that's something that you know, we, it's easy for us to forget when we go to the dictionary as a source that don't forget this was made by people. And so, yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be context to it that you need to have in your mind. Don't, yeah. 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 It's not as though these definitions or example, I think your, your discussion there about examples, right. Can be Uh, very colored in a certain yes. direction. So yes. no, yeah, right. as right. dictionary users, we ne- we just need to be aware of that. You're aware yeah. of that, of, of all the complications of it and the fact that what you're reading may be informative, but informative of what? Mm-hmm. That you may have to work on a little bit yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't enough written about dictionary makers or, or dictionary making, um, in my view. The, the Probably the most famous book uh, from the last couple of decades, you may know it, 
in the United States is called uh, the Professor and the Madman. That's what I, yeah, I've yeah. got that here. Yeah, yeah that's it, it, what I was it, just thinking. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the only one I've read. I yeah, and Simon Winchester, who wrote that book, um, also wrote one called The Meaning of Everything, which, uh, is a, yeah. which is about the Oxford English Dictionary. They're very journalistic books, and I hate to say it, but they're not always accurate or correct, and they're oh. depicting the things. So you have to be careful about what you take away from them. But there's a very readable, even illustrated uh, history, uh, sort of biography of the Oxford English Dictionary by, by Peter Gilliver that mm. I would recommend. It came out in 2016. Gilliver is spelled G-I-L-L-I-V-E-R, is very readable. And one of the things I like about the book is that while, of course, it's a lot about the politics of publishing the dictionary from the Oxford University Press and what people expected of it and the arguments the editors had and all that sort of thing, it's got wonderful sections about uh, the printers, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the people who were doing the actual complicated work of producing the material dictionary. And if you've ever looked at the OED, you have to wonder at its typography, you know, mm -hmm. the way it's laid out with bold and, and, and caps and, and small caps and italics and how when you look at an entry, uh, once you become familiar with it, you can isolate types of information very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. These people were part of the project too. Mm -hmm. We just don't know what their names are, but Peter tells you what their names are. Oh, brings right. them to life as part of the story. I think that's a very important step to make. And then, the Word Detective, which is by John Simpson, oh, who's a recently retired uh, chief editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, oh, okay. written in a very easy, readable way. And the other one is by my friend Corey Stamper, who was an editor at Merriam-Webster for a long time. And then coming up soon, though who knows how soon, is a book by Stefan Fatsis, who um it may be famous to uh, some of your listeners because he wrote a book about competitive Scrabble uh, oh. playing Word Freak. Um, he also oh, did, yeah. I, yeah. yeah, he also I, did some mm -hmm. some participatory sports journalism. He was a he was a sports journalist for NPR for a long time, uh -huh. and now works on a freelance basis. But he's but he's in this tradition uh, like George Plimpton of, mm -hmm. of participatory new journalism, right? So a few years ago. He was wondering about the future of dictionaries, and he convinced uh, Merriam-Webster to hire him, basically, as, uh, as a new lexicographer, so that he could get right in there. I mean, he's defined words that are in the dictionary and everything now, but he wanted to see how it worked from the inside. Right. And I don't, know, I don't know what the title of the book will be, and I don't mm. know exactly when it's going to come out, but my understanding is that it's done. And it's with the publisher. And so I would be looking for a new book by Stefan Francis about uh, uh, the future of dictionaries that also talks about the process. And there, these are all good books that you don't have to, you know, get an extra set of glasses to be able to read. They're mm -hmm. not, you know, they're, they're very learned, but they're not scholarly in a pointy headed university way. Uh, and, and that's a good thing. That's really hilarious. The image of this person, like, yeah, I'm going to be like George Plimpton. I'm going to put on the uniform and the shoulder pads and get hit and tackled. And but I'm going to do it at a dictionary. Well, well, to be fair, Stefan, he did it on the field too in a very Plimpton-esque way, and probably took just as many hits, uh, maybe had as many concussions as as Plimpton had. But yeah, in the end, he turned it he turned it away from the competitive because even Word Freak mm. was about 
you know, that competitive drama. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and of course, there's competition among dictionaries, too. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, but but this is, a, I think, a different kind of, of book for him. And I'm very excited to see how. Yeah, uh, it sounds really fun. Yeah, it sounds interesting. So those are all gifts, gifts to your listeners about what they might read for fun. Yeah, that's really great. Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, well, we were talking about reactions, woke reactions to dictionary texts. And, you know, it is not an excuse to say that dictionaries are made by people. It's a recognition of their cultural significance to say that. Yeah. And there's every reason for someone to be offended, resent, or, or boycott uh, a dictionary because of something that's got in it. But, uh, you know, we have to remember that dictionaries are made by people yeah. and that the process is not a sufficient filter to keep personality and ideology out of dictionaries. And that's one of the things that brings them to life as documents. Um, And it's also one of the liabilities they face. And I'm not saying that people should be easy on dictionaries. I'm just saying it kind of works both ways. You know, I mean, that, that once you recognize that, you realize that, of course, they're imperfect. And of course, they're vulnerable witnesses to human experience. Of course, they are in, in the way that anything we make. Uh, is mm-hmm. and uh, and and you know appreciate the the madeness of them. That means you know recognizing their limitations, uh, but also recognizing how much they mattered to people to make. Well, and I think that's why a collection that Madeline put together and that the Lilly Library is curating and going to make available is if the dictionary wasn't interesting as a historical document then we wouldn't preserve them, but, right. but they are interesting and, yeah. and partly because they're about people and made by people. So that's why we keep them, right? Well, that's, that's right, <laughs> that's right. And even, though, and even though we take them for granted now, when you think about it, dictionaries are kind of crazy. Artifacts. Yeah, I do. I mean, whoever thought of doing that, whoever thought it was a good idea to have, you know, 1300 triple column pages mm-hmm. of information about words with woodcut pictures uh, interspersed, you know, what a what a crazy and inventive creative mm-hmm. thing uh, to come up with. It says as much about the human imagination as it says anything about the meanings of words. Well, as I say, Michael, it was lovely to have you. Thank you so much for spending time with us and good luck with your work. And when you uh, have decided that you wanna come back on the show and tell us more about what you found in the collection, please don't hesitate to reach out. I will let you know because there will be fun things to show and the invitation to visit the Lilly Library and eventually when it's available to view things in the cryptic collection extends to, to, to all of your listeners. So, so stop by, and if you're in town, you can even look me up, and I'll take you over and, and give you a little tour of the, of the library. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. <laughs>